Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, welcome. My name is David Flowers. I'm a senior pastor here at Grantham Church, and thank you for joining us in worship today. And if you're joining the live stream, welcome. We're glad that you're here. You chose to worship with us, and I truly believe that God wants to speak to your heart this morning. You're not here by accident. Sure, you have free choice, but I think the Lord is involved in those choices as well. Amen? So let's come expecting. Let's come with open hearts and ears to hear what the Lord has for us today. We're in week four of a seven-week sermon series called The Gospel of the Kingdom. What it is, why it matters and how it mobilizes the church. Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. But what is the gospel of the kingdom? And what does it mean to believe in the gospel and to partner with God in his kingdom work? That's what we're looking at in this series. Each week I've been reminding us of the definition that we've been operating off of for the good news in the kingdom of God. Here's what we've been saying. What is the good news? It is the gospel story of how God has been at work in the world and is now redeeming it in Jesus Christ who will one day return to bring the fullness of the kingdom. Only Jesus can do that. Only Christ can bring the fullness of the kingdom. So think about it. The gospel is a story. We don't want to reduce it down to a plan of salvation. Uh, we've been showing a graphic where we've got two, two levels. The first one is the popular level. It's all centered on me. And it's about the end of my life, going to heaven or hell. We said this is actually not a biblical perspective of the gospel and uh, even of our destiny. It's an oversimplification and it's a distortion, actually, of this good news story. So think about the gospel, not as, um, you know, four spiritual laws or something that would be presented as, say, like evangelism explosion or to get people to say a prayer so they can die and go to heaven. And it amounts to no depth of discipleship and no greater understanding of what God wants to do in the world and bringing heaven to earth. So this story encompasses the story of Israel, we said in the Old Testament. It encompasses the story of Jesus, the Messiah, his life, teachings, death, resurrection, and ascension, and of course, his return. And then we define kingdom of God this way. The kingdom of God is the reign and the rule of God on the earth, which always looks like Jesus. And just some examples of that, it looks like loving others like Jesus. It looks like healing, reconciling, self-sacrifice, showing mercy, doing justice, all of those things and more. And still, if you're a doubt at, at what the kingdom looks like and what does Jesus look like, well, I hope that you hear in this definition an invitation to read the Gospels, <laughs> to actually look at what Jesus said and what Jesus did. So the kingdom of God is already, but it is not yet. That is, that we live in the overlap of the ages, the present evil age, which we live in, 
and the age to come, which I've been saying is the future age, which has broken into the present. How cool is that? And this is where things are going. We see this in the resurrected body of Jesus, heaven and earth coming together, a signpost saying this is where God is taking everything. Do you believe this or not? So heaven is coming to earth. God's space and our space will be joined together fully and finally in Christ's return. And if you're just joining us for this series, we are, as I said, in in week four. So we've already looked at the gospel as story in message one. We looked at gospel truths, the kinds of things that are important to believe about the gospel. We did the gospel in chairs illustration for that to drive those points home. And then last week, we looked at the gospel in you. This morning, we're going to look at the gospel in us. Right, the gospel in us. In this message, we're going to look at how the church is God's idea. And this is why we don't give up on it, as, as discouraging as that can be sometimes. When you, when you look at the, at least the state of the church in North America, we need to remember that this is God's idea. And he's not going to abandon this idea. And according to the New Testament, the local church, that is us, A gathering of disciples in every given location is called out to be a gospel community that embodies the good news. This is what this message is all about this morning. Gospel in us is that we as the people of God would embody the good news. And what does it look like when we do that? To radiate the spirit-filled life of the kingdom. Therefore, today we'll see how it's through our life together as disciples that we're transformed by the Spirit and called to display the power of the gospel through our church family. And this is how God intends for us to bear witness to his reign and his rule on the earth, to where things are going as we await the fullness of the kingdom on the earth. So this morning we're going to look at a couple different passages of Scripture So if you would, have your Bible handy. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew back in front of you. Have that handy, or if you've got a Bible app on your phone. And before we look at our first scripture reading, I want to ask that you would stop just a moment and and say a prayer for the Spirit's help. Father, we recognize the weight of what we are doing here this morning as we open up the scriptures as we think about the gospel of the kingdom. Holy Spirit, would you make yourself known to us in visible ways? Our hearts are open. Our ears are open to hear from you. Would you fill me with your spirit? Would you fill me with your words? May they find a resting place in our hearts and minds this morning. And all of God's people said, amen. All right, grab your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to begin with verse 1. That is the first gospel in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to read verse 1 through 16. Matthew chapter 5 through 7 is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. This is the core of Jesus' teaching. He goes up on a mountain, he sits down, he begins to teach. 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, heaven is interchangeably used with kingdom of God. This is Matthew writing to a Jewish audience, so he uses heaven instead. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who persecute, and who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way. Let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I said, this is the first part of the Sermon on the Mount we call the Beatitudes. Uh, That is that Jesus says, blessed are the people who live this way. And you'll notice that there's a progression to these Beatitudes. You'll see that in just a moment. This is what it looks like, Jesus is saying. This is what it looks like when we embody the good news. These are the kind of people that we become and, and who we are as good news people, as the children of God. And I want to encourage us this morning to read this as a community, not simply as individuals. I mean, we often do that in the West. We, we read the Scriptures and we think about how does this apply to me directly? What does this look like for me as an individual? And there's nothing wrong with that, but if we stop with that, we actually fall short of what is happening within the New Testament. Read this communally. What does this look like for us as the church who believes in the gospel, who follow Jesus, who believe that the reign and the rule of God is coming, even now, is here. You see, Jesus is describing kingdom living for communities of disciples. So it's not just that when people see you in the world, you as an individual is the, is the light or is salt, but we as this community, together, we do this. This is how the gospel shines through us to the world. Think about it this way. We could sum up the Beatitudes with this graphic. 
So Jesus said that in verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 16, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So think about what he's described in the Beatitudes as light shining out. Now I'm just going to kind of reinterpret each one of these Beatitudes. When Jesus says, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, let's just start and go clockwise there. Start there. Admit that we're needy. The poor in spirit. And now notice the progression. We begin in the position of recognizing our great need. This is the kind of people that we are as good news people. We recognize our great need. Now think about how that ought to shape the way we view God, the way we view ourselves, and the way that we view others whose lives are a mess, (laughs) right? When we begin in the place that we are spiritual paupers, we are in great spiritual need. We are poor. And then the next one, Jesus said that we should be broken over our sin. Right? He said, blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn. What is this mourning about? Specifically, it is about mourning and grieving over our own brokenness, our own spiritual poverty. So it's not that group of people, it's not those people who vote that way, it's it's not this people who don't get the shot, it is all of us. We need to stop as God's people putting people in these kind of divisive, dehumanizing categories. Because what ends up happening is we demonize these people that we don't like, don't agree with, don't look like us, whatever, whatever it is that the kingdoms of the world are serving up for us today. And we actually work against the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we begin with this place of spiritual poverty. We recognize and we mourn over our own sin that we are broken. And then, to retranslate this beatitude, we are are meek. That is, we are humble because of this. You see, when you recognize your own spiritual poverty and and you mourn and you grieve over that, it tends to make you humble. You see the progression? It tends to say, well, who am I to point fingers? Who am I, as Jesus said, to cast stones? Right? So notice this, the, the, the progression of this, these beatitudes. Admit we're needy, we're spiritually poor, be broken and grieve over our own sin. Right? Hate your own sin. <laughs> we love the sin or hate the sin. The way they say, yeah, love the sin or hate your own sin. And be meek and humble because of this. It ought to humble you. It, it, ought to, it ought to make you put your fingers in your pocket. Or at least realize that when you point a finger, there's some pointing back at you. And then Jesus says, have a hunger for righteousness. That is, because of those things that come before, we desire to please God. We know we're made in His image. We're broken not as we should be. But we, we hunger for God. We want to know His will. We want to become like Jesus, who shows us what God is like, what God has always been like. We've not always known this, but now we do, as Brian Zahn would say. This is who we are. This is who we're becoming. So we desire to please God above all else. Jesus said to the woman at the well, I give you living water. You don't have to keep coming back to this other well. What are your wells? What are the, other, the wells that you and I are continually trying to go to? And Jesus says, if you want to be part of my kingdom people, Good news, people, you have to hunger and thirst for this stuff more than anything else. You know, we can be all excited and, and, and be about good causes, good causes. 
But I remember that the, one of the churches in Revelation said, you know, Jesus said to the church, I think it was Ephesus, you've forsaken your first love. Now plug that in there. It seems like these guys, they were all about the truth and, and, and good doctrine and believing the right things, but it had become so much about that that they forgot about the centrality and the supremacy of Christ. They forgot about some of this beatitude stuff and how we can do the same thing. You plug it in. Any kind of movement, any kind of agenda, any kind of passion, any kind of thing I get all excited about, it can take the place of Jesus. You can hunger for those things more than Christ. And when you do that, we get it out of order and we end up expressing those things in some unhealthy, unkingdom ways. Do you follow me? Admit we're needy, be broken over our sin, which ought to humble us, make us meek. We should desire and hunger only for God because all else is idolatry. And then we show mercy because the more we look into the face of God, we realize that he has given mercy to us. We ought to extend that mercy, mirror that mercy. That's what it means to be made in God's image. Uh, N.T. Wright would remind us that we're like angled mirrors as God's image, each one of us, angled mirrors to reflect God's glory into the world and glory back to himself. This is what God wants for you. This is what God wants for Grantham Church. So we show the mercy and we reflect the mercy we've been given. And we pursue holiness. I know, n- not, a, not, a, not a word we throw around a whole lot today. That, that we've, because we've seen some really unhealthy ways of pursuing holiness or purity and, and those kinds of things. But it looks like Jesus. And, and it simply means you being everything that God has created you to be in Christ. That's what it means to be a disciple. What would it look like if Jesus were you? We're not, we're not trying to assimilate like the Borg. We're not doing this like you try to make you like somebody else. But it is to perfect your character, your gifts, your skills, how God has uniquely created you to be. And we all have right, different, different genetic code, every single one of us. And God, God, God loves that. He, he appreciates that about us. But we need to grow up into Christ. We need, we need to pursue Christ. That's what holiness is all about. And we need to be peacemakers. In other words, we don't need to be peacemakers keepers with our cult peacemaker. We need to be peacemakers in the sense of the way Jesus made peace. We need to create peace, not propagate, not fuel, not, not further the divisions, the chaos, the mess of the world. Are you with me? This is what Jesus, this is what Jesus says. This is what Paul said. We, we, God created us to be ministers of reconciliation. And folks, if, if you're not doing that and you're on social media and you're, you're doing something else, right, then you're not being this kind of kingdom person. We're not being that kind of kingdom church. So, Jesus said, be peacemakers. And lastly, he said there in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted. Why would he say that? Because here's the thing. When you choose to live this way, what we've just been talking about, you will be persecuted. But, you know, it says Peter said, isn't it better to suffer for the right things than for the wrong things? <laughs> it's better to suffer for the right things. Because we, we get identified with Jesus in that. Not for being self-righteous jerks. Not for being legalistic and judgmental. You know, no, no, because we're spiritually poor. We started off with that one. Right? So not being prideful, 
Not, not trying to correct people by with guilting and shaming. No, the Jesus way is different. And when we follow in the Jesus way, some people are going to misunderstand it. Some people are going to persecute us. We'll come back to that a little bit later in the message. Let's keep going. I want us to hear this, my friends. This is, this is the sort of good news people that Jesus had in mind when he said these words in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's the King James Version there. You may have a different version, NIV, uh, New Living Translation, whatever it is. Often it translates hell as Hades. One of the things I didn't talk about in the first match of the series, I didn't dive too deep into the concept of hell because it's, it's, it's really much more complicated than what some of us have been brought up to think. And maybe at some point we'll, we'll just do a series on last things and look at that. But there are actually three different Greek words that get, all get translated as hell in the Greek New Testament from the Greek New Testament. The, the idea is this is the, the, the place of the dead, right? And which has gone on to represent sin, death, hell, the devil, all of those kinds of things. But look at what Jesus is saying. I will build my church and the gates of hell, of sin, of death, those powers at work, will not prevail against it. So first, let's look at the first part of this verse. What is the meaning of the church? I, th- I think this is the only place Jesus uses that word, right? So does that mean it's not important? No. <laughs> it's really important. This is all that Jesus has been doing. It's all he's been preparing his disciples for. How to live into the kingdom. How to be his people. How to be the church. But the, the word here in Greek is ekklesia. And it was actually a word that was used in the first century to describe and referred to a group of town leaders and folks who represented the community. So just like there is a secular worldly ecclesia in every place representing the community, Jesus said you are to be ambassadors or maybe say an embassy of the kingdom of God where everybody lives, shops, and plays. This is why we have local churches in every given location or this this is God's design that we would be the ecclesia of God that we would represent the causes and the agenda of the kingdom of God. We'd be those angled mirrors, as we said earlier. Uh, This word is used 114 times in the New Testament to refer to the assembly or gathering of God's people. And the scriptures tell us that this was God's eternal purpose, eternal purpose. His plan from the beginning. And listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. Just, Just listen to me, it won't be on the screens. He said this, God's purpose in all of this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Why is it wisdom? Well, it may look like foolishness to the world, but it's wisdom to God. People from every tribe, tongue, and language, regardless of your your political persuasion or your orientation or whatever, God is calling to be one people, one family, one community. It's something only God could do. And this is, this is what he's doing in his wisdom, Paul says. And he wants to put this on display to the, all the unseen rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was his eternal purpose, Paul said, which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. What a vision. What a vision. 
And do you think that vision can be accomplished through any forces and groups and political parties or whatever in the world? Absolutely not. This is something only the Spirit of God can do in us. So don't miss this, folks. God calls out His people, His family, to be united in one common faith through one baptism and worship of one Lord, setting aside all other loyalties and allegiances to accept the identity, the purpose, and the way of living that Jesus gives to all those who choose to follow Him through the local church. I was talking with another pastor last night at the BIC Historical Society annual meeting, and he's in the Atlantic Conference, and he said that a lot of our churches, or a lot of our pastors have lost half of their churches. Folks, what's going on? I think it's complex. There are a lot of things going on. But one of these things that all this, certainly the last election cycle has proven, is that some people have other loyalties and allegiances other than Jesus. Amen? Or oh me. (laughs) It's true. It's true. So what does it mean to put Christ at the center? It means that regardless of what some of our opinions are about how the kingdoms of the world ought to operate and whatever else we have opinions about, the thing that is stronger, oh, so much stronger than that, or at least should be, or it's idolatry, is this table which we are going to participate in today. So don't miss this. God calls out His people to overcome all of these, these boundaries and divisions. We, we heard this scripture earlier in the worship service. Yes, of course, there is a universal holy Catholic church. We say that, and we'll say that today in the Apostles' Creed, little c. That means there's one church all across the planet, which we're reminded when we confess the Apostles' Creed, which, we, as I said, we'll do to later uh, this, this service. But the New Testament shows us that God's eternal purpose, this grand vision for the church, is to be lived out locally. And the church is made up of churches in every place where people gather in community, as I said, to live, work, shop, and play. And these churches are like kingdom embassies or, or think of outposts. Outposts spread out in every place that humans gather. And we're to be a witness on behalf of Christ and the gospel, showing a watching world how Jesus and the good news changes everything. So you know what it comes down to? It comes down to us simply believing this stuff. If we truly will believe it and seek to embody it, the Spirit will empower us to put this on display. And folks, some people will come running to that. And as I've I've said before, the purpose of the gathering of the local church is for worship, it's for community and discipleship. We gather together so that we might be equipped, inspired, and empowered to be the missional sent church in the world. And so we, I've said it this way before, we gather, we grow, we give, and we go. We gather, we grow, we give, and we go. It's, it's, it's through this rhythm, you see, that we're shaped by Christian liturgies and practices, which we need because we're getting it 24-7 in the world. And this is why we need to come into the church and the routines and rhythms of the church to be shaped and be reminded And Pastor Melissa said this in our Discover class this morning, to recalibrate. Recalibrating. (laughs) This is is how we recalibrate our GPS. 
This is how we orient our loves and be reminded, oh yeah, those things are idols. Oh yeah, I shouldn't seek after those things. Oh yeah, that's not who I am. Oh yeah, that's the good news. That other stuff's not so great news. Oh yeah, Jesus can save us, not Caesar. All of those things are what we do in the community of Christ. Amen? And again, this, the, the Lord uses this to build His church. And notice we, we have a promise from Jesus that the gates of hell will not stop us from fulfilling God's plans and arriving at his good future. Remember from our image of the the gospel story, which I borrowed from the Bible project, made it my own. Get this image, right? The, The spaces, God's space, heaven and earth, our space coming together and Jesus and his resurrected body is the signpost of that. This is where things are going and it's headed toward a new heaven and a new earth. Stuff matters, the stuff matters. Be done with the escapist gospel. Be done with the I fly away stuff. I know, good song, bad theology. It's not good because it makes us think, well, we'll just sit in our recliner and stare at the skylight, wait for Jesus to come back. And, and, and I've heard some Christians say that. I said this last week. They said, it's all going to burn. Who cares about climate change? Who cares about the stuff? You know, we just need to save souls and get people on the J train before the ship takes off. No. Heaven is coming to earth. Jesus says so. His resurrected body says so. So again, back to this hell idea. Look at this picture. Hell is on the way out. Hell is something we've created. It becomes something in internal sense. But it's on the way out. It won't won't fit. It has no purpose and place in God's new heaven and earth. And so our, our belief and embodiment of the gospel, don't miss this, our belief and embodiment of the gospel confronts sin, death, and hell everywhere we see it. When we embody the gospel as the church here at Grantham, we confront the powers of hell with the good news and we drive it out. We drive it out. Think of it this way. The gospel, in this sense, is the insurgency of heaven. It is the insurgency of heaven. And of course, we're not bearing AKs. We're not not holy terrorists. We're not out to do violence in, in, in in these little cells we call churches that are permeating the earth. No, we bear our cross. We, we, we embody the love of Jesus, and in that way, we share the good news. So when we confess, listen, when we confess Jesus as Lord and we join the local church, and I know there's plenty to choose from, which makes it a little challenging today. Some people get upset, they leave, they go down the, the church down the road, they try to, it's very consumeristic, right? It's just very consumeristic Christianity we live in. Resist it, please, resist it. Resist it. Find a church. If it's, if it's us, great. If it's not us, it's somebody else, that's great. We're all on the same team. But plug yourself in and work out your salvation and be about the good news of the gospel of the kingdom. Amen? You see, we need to choose to live into the story and then partner with God to welcome more of the kingdom through our lives. And specifically, to embody the good news to the church the ecclesia of Christ. And so what does this look like? Real quick, I don't have time to go through all of this, uh, but um, you know, this would be something good to talk about maybe in your small groups. 
This comes from Leslie Newbegin's classic book, The Gospel in a Pluralistic Society. So I'll just use some of the, well, actually six specific, six specific points that he uses to describe what the church ought to look like when it embodies the gospel. He calls it the church is a hermeneutic of the gospel. And hermeneutics is just the, the um, way we interpret the scriptures. So the church should be the interpreter of the gospel, right? When people look at us, they'd be able to like, that's the gospel right there. I, I see it. I see it in how they're living. I see it in the way the church acts. This is what it looks like. Number one, he said, it looks like a community of praise and worship, and specifically to the God who looks like Jesus. Everybody worships something, folks. As Bob Dylan said, everybody's got to serve somebody. <laughs> who are you serving? Who are you worshiping? And, and built into that praise is thanksgiving. We're, we're thankful. We're not just cynical people in despair and nihilists. We, we are thankful. And, and we, we praise God for the good things that he's doing. Even in the midst of this pandemic, there are things to be thankful for. There, there are things to be grateful for and to worship the one true God. So we're marked out by that. Number two, we're also a community of grace and truth. Not just truth, but grace and truth. And we actually believe that there is such a thing. Yeah, you know, I was reminded of this yesterday. We were doing some anti-racism stuff um, uh, with Messiah. We're really grateful to be a part of that. It's called Thriving Together. And uh, there's a, 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 a panelist. At one part of the day, there's some panelists, and not all of them were Christians speaking. And it just reminded me as I was listening, it's, the gospel is not hug a peasant near you. And as soon as you detach loving your neighbor out of the belief that God created us, that there is objective truth, there is an objective moral lawgiver, then you can't root that in anything. Somebody says, love your neighbor. Why should I? Well, because God created you because he created them, because you're made in his image. They have inherent worth. You see where this is going? But without that, you, can't, you have nothing to, to base your case. Well, anyways, I digress. It's important to be a community of grace and truth, and we can do both. Newbegin says uh, a community that does not live for itself, number three. A community that doesn't live for itself. We don't just exist to keep the lights on. We don't just exist for our, for our own comfort. We certainly don't exist for that. We exist for others. Maybe the only institution in the face of the planet that is, is at least supposed to be embodying that purely. We exist for those who are not yet a part of us. Think about that. Number four, a community where all are prepared to be priests in the world. I know that you're not all going to be vocational ministers, although I hope that some of you would be. God knows we certainly need them today, and many of them are quitting. But we are all priests where God has called us to operate according to our gifts and skills. So if you're a fundraiser, be the, be the gospel there, embody the gospel, be a priest there. If you're a lawyer, be a priest there. If you're an administrator, be a priest there. This is what it means to come in to recognize where a royal priesthood, as Peter's gonna say, and to learn how to be conduits of the good news, facilitators of the gospel where God has called us. Number five, Newbegin says, it looks like a community that advocates for a new social order. You know, the thing is, the table's a good representation of this in the, in the Roman world. Uh, everybody had a specific seat that they were supposed to be at at the table, and the person who had the most power sat at the, at the power place of the table, at the end of the table, and it just went down from there. But at Jesus' table, all of those seats are equal. 
You, you know, when, when you understand the gospel this way, that Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, he said that in Christ there's neither uh, male nor female nor Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. What is he saying? It doesn't, he's not saying completely ignore people's status or their gender. What he's saying is we are all equal and the same in Jesus. We all have a place around this table, and it's the same seat. Amen? <laughs> Amen. And so this is the, the gospel, if properly understood, radically transforms and it is subversive to the social order of society. It, it challenges status. It challenges class. It challenges race. It challenges everything. This is what it means to embody the gospel. And lastly, he says, a community of hope in a world of cynicism, nihilism, and despair. You know, if there's, only, there's anything in our society that we seem hopeful about, it's our technology. But when it comes to art and poetry and, and, and the rest of the humanities, it's, I mean, it is nihilism. It is dark. You just look at the movies that are coming out, right? These apocalyptic movies, dystopian future movies. But we are supposed to be a people that embody the good news and puts on display to the world that we have hope in Christ. We have hope in Christ. And as far as technology goes, good grief, just watch the Terminator. We see where the technology goes. So brothers and sisters, look, this is how the first Christians lived and how they embodied the gospel in their congregations in the first century. And so what we needed to do is to hold in our heads and our hearts uh, this kind of idea when we read passages like this. This is First Peter chapter 2, as I mentioned a minute ago, verse 9 through 12. When you are chosen people, Peter said, chosen for this purpose, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. You know, what we need to do is what the astronauts do, and that is what, you know, this holy nation business, is, is recognize God's trying to create a new humanity. Isn't that what we read this morning? A new humanity. No borders, no boundaries, no, no, none of these false imaginary marks of demarcation. Just like an astronaut, go up, go up into space, look down on the earth. Do you see any lines on a map? No. And this is what the gospel is trying to tell us, that we are God's children but he seeks to adopt us, and we have to own up and respond to that. That you might declare the praises of him, Peter said, who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. He says, verse 11, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and aliens or exiles, right? Because we're an embassy. To abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans. That simply means the non-believers, those who have not accepted the gospel, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day he visits us. There's a lot that could be said about that. Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted. You think when you live this way, wouldn't everybody like you? <laughs> Apparently not. Apparently not. Some will still accuse you of doing wrong. You know, I remember when I was coming into this radical message of the good news, I just give you one example of that. This whole kingdom of God concept, which I've been articulating for you, some people accused me of being anti-American, like I was communist. 
It's like, no, I just have a bigger, I guess, view of God than you do, a bigger view of the gospel than you do. That this is what we're all being called into. So we've already heard Jesus tell us what good news, what the good news people look like. And Jesus said it's through this radical living that we become salt and light, another, another metaphor. Just like the light, also salt, which preserves. It preserves. Now let's hear from the Apostle Paul. He uses a different metaphor for describing what it looks like when we embody the gospel. Not just our individual lives, but through the church. Turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians Ephesians, Philippians, Galatians chapter 5. Beginning with verse 13. Ah, this is so applicable to, to today and our American sense of freedom. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather serve one another humbly in love. I want you to notice there, the way that the New Testament defines freedom is different than the way America defines it. We, we often think in the secular idea of freedom, is freedom just to do whatever I want to do as long as I don't hurt anybody. But Paul says, no, real freedom, true freedom is liberating freedom, and that freedom is using choice to do what is kingdom. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, it seems that some in the region of Galatia were doing, even though they professed Jesus, they were dividing and devouring each other, and nobody does that today. Watch out or you will be destroyed by each other because we're all connected. We're in this together. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what's contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. So you're not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Yeah. Verse 19, the acts of the flesh. What does it look like when you're not living and embodying the gospel? And you're, and you're just living according to your carnality. It looks like sexual morality, impurity, debauchery. That just means whatever feels good, you do it. Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage. Selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, looks like envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before, Paul said, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And here's the good news. While all that was evidence of the flesh, here's evidence that the Spirit is at work in you and in us at Grantham Church. The fruit of the Spirit is this, love, joy, peace, Forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We said no to that already. We need to keep saying no to it, Paul says. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And to help us get this image, here's another picture for us. Paul said the fruit of the Spirit are those things. Think of fruit on a tree. Is your life bearing this fruit? Is our church bearing this fruit of love, of joy, of peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control? This is the fruit that the Spirit bears in us and in our church. We bear fruit when we are intentional about discipleship and embodying the gospel. 
This is what our family, friends, and neighbors must see in us if we're going to be good news people. So just a moment, look at that image and think, are there areas that God is calling me to grow in? Finally, here are a couple of questions for reflection and response before we partake in communion. Let's seriously consider these things before we confess our common creed and come to the table, receive a a tangible reminder of the gospel this morning. Number one, are we cultivating growth that bears fruit? You can ask that for yourself and ask that as a church. Are we cultivating growth that bears fruit? As I said, maybe specifically the Spirit is speaking to you about some of those things. David, I want you to, I want you to grow into this more. I, I want to see more love in you. I want to see more joy in you. I want to I want to see more patience. Maybe one of those things. I want to see more self-control. Maybe take Twitter off your phone. Whatever it is. Are we cultivating growth of bears fruit? Number two. And lastly, are we embodying the gospel in this way at Grantham? Are we becoming the, the people Jesus describes there at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount? Are we bearing this fruit? Are we shining the light? Are we being the salt of the earth? Here, here's some more good news for you. We're not left alone to do this in our own strength. All we have to do is yield to the Holy Spirit, and we will have all the power that we need. Father, we thank you for the good news. We thank you, Lord, that Christ wants to come and dwell in us, your spirit to fill us, to give us the power to bear fruit, to be that city on a hill, to be salt and light in this world. When our world and especially our country is in desperate need of the gospel. Help us to be all that you are calling us to be and help us to grasp this beautiful vision of the kingdom of God and of your people, the church, embodying the good news. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.